0: If you would, turn in your Bibles to Exodus, the 12th chapter. We're going to use that as a starting point here today. We continue in the God of the Festival series that I've been preaching off and on for a number of weeks. And we're coming today to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I go back to the Alfred Edersheim quote that has stuck with me since I've been studying this, where he spoke of the festivals... Being trystings of Jehovah with his people. And the trysting means that the people meet together at a certain time for a time of festive joy. And even romancing, in the sense of that meaning of trysting, Jehovah comes and romances his people. So these were not times of frowning faces and, oh my goodness, we got to go to the feast. No, these were times of festive joy. And if you recall, the weekly festival, of course, was the Saturday Sabbath. And then there were the seven yearly festivals. You know, that's a lot. We think about vacations because that's, I mean, that's what these things basically were. They were to desist from work and enjoy fellowship, okay? And we think about, a, you know, we take maybe a, a yearly vacation. There were seven vacations built into the yearly calendar of the Jews by God Himself. And I said before, there's, there's so much apathy and atheism out there in the world today. I mean, no man could have come up with all this. There's no way that a man could have come up with this all of the complexity of these festivals. Now, when I say they're complex, they themselves were very simple. Seven yearly festivals, the Passover, the Unleavened Bread, the Firstfruits, the Pentecost Feast, the Trumpets Feast, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of the Tabernacles. And as I began studying this, I've always thought of the Passover and the Pentecost and the Tabernacles as the big three. And I've said that in past sermon, but as I continue to study this, I realize that the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread are synonymous, are connected. They're separate. The Passover was the one-night feast where they put the lamb up on the 10th day of the month of what would be very similar to our month of April. It was the month of Abib or Nisan. And they would put it up on the 10th and they would sacrifice it on the night of the 14th. And then you'll see specifically as we read, I'm going to read several places from the Scripture because I want that to register with you that the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a separate feast. But it, it piggybacked, Passover piggybacked on it, if you will. So you have the Friday night or the 14th, day of the month Passover and that initiates for the next seven days is the separate feast of the unleavened bread and of course you eat unleavened bread in the Passover okay you say well we just can't identify with this today yes you can you've had communion (laughs) you know that is the communion is the perfection of all of the feasts you see the worship in the New Testament brings all of those feasts together and we focus on Christ, see? Because Christ was the central focus of all of the feasts. So let's read in Exodus 12. I want to start reading in verse 12. And we're going to read a little bit more, but I want you to it's intentional because I want you to see the repetition that God puts in front of the people so they won't forget. Let's read in Exodus 12 and verse 12. And he's speaking of the Passover. He says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. Remember I told you all of Egypt was under judgment, including the Israelites. Nobody's getting out from judgment unless there's blood. You see? And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, verse 14. And ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Ye shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Now listen to the language. Seven days shall ye eat unleavened bread. Even the first day ye shall put away leaven out of your houses. For whosoever eateth leavened bread from the first day unto the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. And in the first day there shall be an holy convocation, and in the seventh day there shall be an holy convocation. That's a get together to worship God. No manner of work shall be done in them, save that which every man must eat. That only must be done, may be done of you, and you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. You catch that? For in this self same day have I brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore shall ye observe this day and your generations by an ordinance forever. In the first month, that's the month of Abib. On the fourteenth day of the month at even, you shall eat unleavened bread, that's in the Passover, until the one and twentieth day of the month at even. That's seven days later. Seven days shall there be no leaven found in your houses. How about that? You had to get all the leaven out of your house. For whosoever eateth that which is leavened, even that soul shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he be a stranger or born in the land. You shall eat nothing leavened, and all your habitations shall ye eat unleavened bread. Turn over to Exodus 23, just a few pages over. And here the Lord once again lays out the feasts, the big three feasts, Exodus 23 and verse 13. And I've tried to put these sequential. So you page turners, it'd be a little easier to get there. Okay. I've already turned mine down. So it's a lot easier for me. Exodus 23 and verse 13. And in all things that I have said unto you, be circumspect. In other words, do these things that I've told you to do. And make no mention of the name of other gods. That's important. I want you to remember that as we come back to that in just a little bit. Neither let it be heard out of thy mouth. No other gods are to be mentioned. There are no other gods. You see? Three times thou shalt keep a feast unto me in the year. Now look, you say, well, you said seven, Brother Tim. These are the three where you have to leave your home and take a vacation and go somewhere. There's other feasts, but these are the three specific ones where you had to appear at the tabernacle. Thou shalt keep the feast of unleavened bread. There's one. Thou shalt eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded thee in the time appointed of the month of Bebe, For in it thou camest out from Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty. He goes on and tells you about the other two, but we're going to stick with the feast of unleavened bread. Okay, turn over to the book of Leviticus. And I know we're reading a little more than we do, but it's intentional. I want you to see the repetitiveness. Leviticus 23 and look at verse 4. These are the feasts of the Lord, even holy convocations, which ye shall proclaim in their seasons. In the fourteenth day of the first month at even is the Lord's Passover. All right, you see that? And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread unto the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. In the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein. But ye shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord seven days. And the seventh day is in holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein. You see the distinction? There's Passover on the 14th day. And on the 15th day begins the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Now, one more place that I want to read to you. And it's important because you'll see how God continues to elaborate. This is Deuteronomy 16. If you want to be turning there. The repeat of the law. Deuteronomy 16. And you'll see where God gives you a little more information about what's the big deal with unleavened bread. I'm going to tell you what, if you're worried about all this reading, just remember that's going to be the most perfect part of this sermon as long as I don't mess up a word. (laughs) It's the Word of God. It's the inspired Word of God. Deuteronomy 16 and 1, let's read. Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover unto the Lord thy God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord thy God brought thee forth out of Egypt by night. Thou shalt therefore off, uh, excuse me, I messed it up. See, thou shalt therefore sacrifice the Passover unto the Lord thy God of the flock and the herd in the place which the Lord shall choose to place his name there. Eventually, that became Jerusalem when the temple was built there. Thou shalt eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days shalt thou eat unleavened bread therewith, even the bread of affliction. All right, did you catch that? The bread of affliction is what unleavened bread is called. Why? We'll see. For thou camest forth out of the land of Egypt in haste, that thou mayest remember the day when thou camest forth out of the land of Egypt, all the days of thy life, and there shall be no leavened bread seen with thee in all thy coast seven days. Neither shall there anything... Of the flesh which thou sacrificest the first day at even remain all night until the morning thou mayest not sacrifice the passover with any of thy within any of thy gates which the Lord thy God giveth thee but at the place which the Lord thy God shall choose to place his name in there thou shalt sacrifice the passover at even at the going down of the sun, at the season that thou camest forth out of Egypt, and thou shalt roast and eat it in the place which the Lord thy God shall choose, and thou shalt turn in the morning and go unto thy tents. Six days thou shalt eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord thy God. Thou shalt do no work therein. That's a lot of reading, I know. But do you catch how the Lord is making the distinction about the feast of the unleavened bread? It's the Passover comes first and then the feast of the unleavened bread begins the next day. And I want you to notice that he referred to the unleavened bread as the bread of affliction. Don't forget that. The bread of affliction. Now the word itself, if you look up the definition, the Hebrew word unleavened or unleavened bread, it is the Hebrew word mezoth, which means it tastes bad. (laughs) Y'all have had communion many times here at Bethlehem. Some of you more recent members, maybe not so many times, but unleavened bread is not real tasty, is it? It just doesn't taste that good. It doesn't taste the same as the bakery bread that's all fluffed up and beautiful that you pick up at the grocery store and kind of squeeze it and make sure that it feels fresh, you know? I mean, you could eat that bread by itself sometimes. (laughs) I'm sure maybe some of you have done that. I've done that. It tastes pretty good. It's got a little bit of a sweet taste to it. You ever been to the, sometimes go out to a restaurant, and there's a couple places that we go that sometimes the bread they bring is about the tastiest thing that you get at the restaurant. The rest of the stuff's good, but they'll bring out some bread, and maybe especially in a Italian restaurant, that thick bread, and they'll put some of that oil out there and a little pepper in it, and you dip it in there. Some of y'all getting hungry and licking your lips right now. But look, Passover bread, unleavened bread, is not like that. It's flat. It's not attractive. It's just sort of tasteless in a way. It's got a little bit of a taste to it, but it does not taste like leavened bread. Okay. So the very meaning of the phrase or word unleavened bread is bread of affliction. Now, it's a symbol of the hardship and the affliction that they faced in Egypt. I like one of the quotes from Alfred Edersheim, who y'all can tell I've been reading a lot of brother Edersheim. He says, it was not bread of affliction because it was unleavened. It was unleavened because it had been that of affliction. You wrap your mind around that. It means it's pointing back to a time when they were under and in great affliction. So when they ate that bread and when they tasted that bread, it reminded them of what they had been through, or at least what their ancestors had been through in Egypt. As a matter of fact, when the Lord spoke to Abraham, did you know the Lord spoke to Abraham and told Abraham that his descendants would be in Egypt for 400 plus years? And he said, God said, they're going to be in affliction. And that's one of the same words there. They're going to be in affliction, bread of affliction. So here is a great example. You see, how can we relate to that today? Do you ever sit around or study the Word of God and think about the cross? <laughs> you know, you think about if you think about the cross, what do you think about? You think about Jesus hanging on that cross. It's a symbol. It was a reality two thousand, almost two thousand years ago. But in our minds today, when we think of the cross of Christ, we think of the pain and the suffering and all that. Jesus went through on the cross see so God builds into this feast the bread of affliction so they at this time would look back and think about what they went through whenever they were in Egypt they were in great trouble in slavery being treated horribly there was genocide going on or at least they attempted genocide the kings did wanted to have the mothers kill their babies the boy babies it was a great affliction in Egypt. So when they sat down and they ate the Passover bread, it was unleavened. It was the bread of affliction. It didn't taste very good. Now, if you think about it too, that doesn't really go along with festive joy, does it? <laughs> you know, you're going to sit there and eat this terrible tasting bread. That's kind of a one of those ironies of the kingdom of God. You know, they could have festive joy as they ate the bread that wasn't that good. It was bread of affliction. They could still have festive joy because as they ate that bread and they were reminded of what their ancestors or they went through, they could think, we're no longer under that kind of bondage. Praise God. So when you take the communion supper today and you eat the bread, I tell you, child of God, it's unleavened and it's bread of affliction. But we can rejoice, can't we? Because the true bread, the Son of God, the bread from heaven, was in great affliction For your sins. And paid for your sins. So I've told you before when we've done communion. It's the happiest funeral you'll ever go to. (laughs) Now a few weeks ago. I went to my high school coach's funeral. And I came away, I cried a little bit, I laughed a little bit. That was one of the best funerals I've ever been to. The son and the brother got up there and talked a little bit. It was great. we laughed, we cried and I came away. I told his wife, the widow, I said, that was a great funeral. <laughs> and you get what I mean? you know we're not rejoicing that he's dead, you get it. We're mourning, but I'm gonna tell you a way that that funeral could have been greater. Can you figure it out if Coach Wright had got up out of that casket and resurrected right there, that'd been the greatest funeral you've ever been to? So when you come to the communion, it is a funeral observance of the death of Christ. But it wasn't just the death, and it wasn't just the burial. It's also the resurrection of Christ. So you get that? Oh, it's painful to think about the death. It's painful to think about the loss. But at the same time, the Lord has the last say over death. Do you get that? So the bread of affliction that we observe with Jesus Christ, when we think about what He went through and we look at the cross and we see what He had to endure in order to pay for our sins, it makes us sad from the standpoint of what He had to do for my sins, but we rejoice in knowing that the grave didn't hold Him. You get that? So you can rejoice. You can have festive joy. My goodness, these folks would come together and they'd say, we're not slaves in Egypt. We'll be happy to eat the unleavened bread for seven days because we're not slaves. So you see how God said to purge out the leaven. Get it out of your houses. They had to go and discard this. That would have been hard for some of us who like to hold on to things, right? Well, you know, seven days passes and we can use all this leaven again and we can start blowing our bread back up. No, God said, get it out and throw it away. See? So well, that's going to cost money. What did David say whenever David was going to purchase a piece of property from a local landowner? And the man said, I'll just give it to you. The man said, let me just give it to you. You're the king. And David said, no, no. How can I serve my God and it not cost me something? You get that? It ought to cost us something. What is it costing us? What things do we need to remove from our houses like leaven? And you say, well, that's going to cost money. Listen, in the days of the book of Acts, whenever Paul was preaching in Ephesus, that great city that we always go back to, where there is no church today, but back in those days, it was one of the biggest and thriving churches in the days of the book of Acts. And the apostle Paul went and preached there, and you remember in the book of Acts, it talks about how they took all of those books that they had, those witchcraft books, and they piled them up in the city, and they burned them, and there was somebody Standing by, tallying it up. Oh my goodness, there's another $10. There's another $100. There's another $20. There's another. And nobody was going to be able to use those things, you see. It's maybe getting a little too detailed, but there's been a time or two in my life when I have gone through my little movie library, which you don't really have to have a movie library anymore nowadays with Netflix and Amazon Prime and all this stuff that's out there. But in my little movies that I i would keep, and you know, we always had the clear play, of course, but I'd go through them from time to time and I'd think, yeah, you know. If somebody ever watched that without clear play, you know, I just, I, I'm not gonna give it away. I'm just gonna throw it away. You get it? I'm getting the leaven out. Is that a little too personal? <laughs> Some of you thinking I'm gonna go home and look through my movie library. Praise God if you do. Amen. If it costs you just a little bit, it's not gonna hurt anything. If the leaven comes out, all of the Israelite people had to get leaven out of their house. You see? You say, well, I didn't know that leaven related to us that way today. Leaven in the Word of God. Except for one place, except for one place in the New Testament, is always a symbol of badness and sin. So now you understand why God said, Get the leaven out. God said, My son will have no leaven in him. You get it? Christ is the unleavened bread. The unleavened bread from the Old Testament was a symbol of the coming Christ who would have no sin in him. Now, Let's talk about some lessons from the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And we're going to look at some examples in the Word of God. If you want to be turning to 2 Chronicles, the 8th chapter, I'm going to show you several places in the Word of God where Unleavened Bread feasts took place. Now remember, let's get it in our minds. The first Feast of the Passover, the first Feast of Unleavened Bread, it was, the Passover was in Egypt. And if you read carefully, it says that they had already kneaded their dough and brought their dough together and it was unleavened and they took it as they left. (laughs) They held the Feast of Unleavened Bread on the run or on the walk as they left Egypt. Now, when they get into the Promised Land, that's whenever God says, where I set my name, I want you to come and observe these three feasts on a yearly basis. Now, let's pause there for just a minute as I'm sure you're at 2 Chronicles 8. But I want you to think about this. The very heart of God as revealed in the feasts is if you if you put if you let me put it this way, it is a defense against all of the wicked feasts that were going on out in the world. Okay, there was only one place on the planet where God was being worshipped in spirit and in truth through these feasts, and it was in Israel. And in other places, I want you to think about this now. This is the month of Abib. This is the month of April. This is when winter is dying. And everything's beginning to blossom and everything's beginning to bloom. And the the nation of Israel is born in that month. And one night, and then they observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And when they get in the Promised Land, notice how God is occupying their time with these good things. You ever wondered a little deeper on that why? Because the other nations were doing some horrible things. Practically all of the other nations, especially the nations of Canaan, which God said to run them out, especially in the nations that were contained in Canaan land where the Israelites came in and took over. They worshiped human sexuality. It was called the fertility cults. Okay, So in these other nations, in these filthy nations, you've got them worshiping reproduction. You say, why? Because they connected that with the growth of their crops and things because that's a reproduction right winter comes along everything dies you plant and then things are reproduced you see they connected that with human reproduction he said Oh, I wrote him that's a little too detailed you need to hear it because still the fertility cults are still around today <laughs> they're still out there i'll give you a couple or a few in just a minute but here's why it's so bad First of all, you can read how bad it was in the book of Leviticus. There's Leviticus 17, 18, 19. It tells you how those societies, because of the way they worshipped, they descended into horrible practices. It started out with adultery and fornication. And then it went to homosexuality. And then it went to, yes, bestiality. Why do you think God told them to chase them out? He said, I don't want you to have anything to do with that type of wickedness. God said it's abomination. You see? So why did they worship reproduction? Because they believed that was the way to get their crops to make each year. If we will worship that and pray to the false gods of reproduction, which there were many, they had many different names. Baal was one of those names. Asterisk was another name. Eventually in the days of the Greeks, Diana, others that you could name, Okay. But they believed that if they properly worshipped the gods of reproduction and they worshipped reproduction itself, then they would have crops and they'd be able to eat. <laughs> so you know what they did? They would sacrifice the product of that activity. you all understand me? When the product of that activity came along, little babies, they'd take those little babies and they'd kill them, sacrifice them. They take them to the temple of Tophet, to the temple of Baal, to the temple of wherever. All of them did this. And it's because they worshipped reproduction. They thought that if they sacrificed their beautiful little babies, <laughs> the firstborn, where do you think they got that from? It was a twist of what God said hundreds of years before, even before the flood, where He said the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. Everything that, that Satan goes after that God has set up. He tries to pervert it or twist it. God said there's a single seed coming one day that's going to to save my people from their sins. And so Satan perverts that and he gets the nations and the people to worship reproduction, which is where the seed comes from, you see? And then they start killing their babies, sacrificing them. Is that a little too real for (laughs) y'all? I think you need to hear it because the worship of the fertility cults are out there today. The proponents of the fertility cult today have names like Kardashian. Are you with me? In the 80s, when Sister Tracy and I were in high school, it was Madonna, Beyonce nowadays. Listen to me. Can I be just as plain as I possibly can be? If you follow those, if you are interested in those, and you keep up with those, keeping up with the Kardashians, you worship the fertility cults. (laughs) Is that a little too plain? If nothing else, maybe the next time it pops up on your screen, you'll see my ugly face. (laughs) And you'll think, Brother Tim said? I'm only telling it because I love you. If you follow those things, and you, you know, sometimes I read different news feeds, and it just amazes me that I'll be reading an important, you know, some kind of political-type news feed, or this happened, or that happened, and then something will pop up and it'll say, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo did this, or, you know, Kim Kardashian did this or Beyonce broke up with her boyfriend or something. I'm like, does that really belong in the realm of what's going on in, in the world? <laughs> well, when you look at how many followers they have, how many fertility cult worshipers there are out there, then you see why. You know, maybe God put me in your life just to, to ruin your good time. I don't know. <laughs> i tell you, my daddy and my mama ruined my good time many times. Praise God for them. <laughs> the old dream killer, Brother Jim. But it's good to understand that Satan just takes these you look back and you say, How did those people take their beautiful little babies and cast them into the temple where the drums were beating and they killed them and for the sake of reproduction, worshiping reproduction? And yet Satan has taken that and repackaged it up today, and people abort their children for the sake of fertility. You get it? For the sake of being fertile, for the sake, I just can't have this child in my life. You know, because it's going to keep me from being productive. Have y'all ever heard that? So somebody has an abortion. That is the classic form of worshiping the fertility cult. Give up your child. Satan just repackages. He just reloads, gets his guns out, puts them up for a while whenever something is exposed, and he just reloads and comes out shooting again. That's how Satan works. So here's the point. I didn't mean to go off on that too long. But obviously, you know, since the Lord burdened me with that, there's somebody here that needed to hear that. So I didn't mean to go off on that too long but I want you to see how God is giving a good and great festive joyful answer to the fertility cults. You know, here and think about how that would occupy their minds. 7 times a year they're supposed to go to these feasts. At 3 times a year, they take a vacation and they go up to the temple and they go and they worship and they have this festive time together. Joyful and nobody's killing their babies. Praise God. Nobody's worshiping fornication. Nobody's worshiping adultery. They're going up to worship Jehovah who told them to come to where he said his name. You see, there's a purity in the worship of God. There's a purity in the way that God said, worship me. And so they would go up and in 2 Chronicles 8 and 12, which y'all forgot I mentioned that, right? Y'all thought I forgot about that. But in 2 Chronicles 8 and 12, this is where Solomon observed one of these feasts of unleavened bread. And remember, the Passover comes first and then seven days of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. We've got to move along. Here we go. Second Chronicles 8 and 12. Then Solomon offered burnt offerings unto the Lord on the altar of the Lord, which he had built before the porch, even after a certain rate every day, offering according to the commandment of Moses on the Sabbaths and on the new moons and on the solemn feasts three times in the year, even in the Feast of Unleavened Bread and in the Feast of Weeks and in the Feast of of tabernacles. And he appointed according to the order of his David, David his father the courses of the priests to their service and the Levites to their charges to praise and minister before the priests as the duty of every day required. The porters also by their courses at every gate. For so had David the man of God commanded. Isn't that beautiful? What a wonderful time of feasting it was. And there were no babies being killed. And there was no reproduction being worshipped. They were there to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth doing what God commanded them to do. Look at 2 Chronicles the 30th chapter. Here you find another great feast of unleavened bread being observed in the days of Hezekiah. Look at 2 Chronicles the 30th chapter. And let's read in verse 1. Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover unto the Lord God of Israel. And so the king had taken counsel and his princes and all the congregation in Jerusalem to keep the Passover in the second month. For they could not keep it at that time because the priests had not sanctified themselves sufficiently. Neither had the people gathered themselves together to Jerusalem. Now this is just testimony to the grace and mercy of God. They couldn't get it all together the first month so they sought the will of the Lord and got it together in the second month okay and the thing pleased the king and all the congregation so they established a decree to make proclamation throughout all Israel from Beersheba even to Dan that they should come to keep the Passover unto the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem for they had not done it of a long time in such sort as it was written see they'd gotten away from the word of God they'd gotten away from what God said to do in the feast and so now they're coming back to it praise God So the post went with the letters from the king. That's the postman. They went out and they sent out all these letters through the land. Now this is important, and don't miss this, because the northern kingdom at this time had been taken captivity. But Hezekiah has such a heart for the people of God that he sends the letters even up into the northern area where there are still people living that are descendants of the Israelites. You see? And so the post went with the letters from the king and the princes throughout all Israel and Judah, and according to the commandment of the king, saying, Ye children of Israel, turn again unto the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. And he will return to the remnant of you that are escaped out of the hand of the kings of Assyria. And be not ye like your fathers and like your brethren which trespassed against the Lord God of their fathers, who therefore gave them up to desolation as ye see. Now be ye not stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves unto the Lord and enter into his sanctuary which he has sanctified forever. And serve the Lord your God that the fierceness of his wrath may turn away from you. For if ye turn again unto the Lord, your brethren and your children shall find Find compassion before them that lead them captive. He's talking to those that were already into captivity. He said, you'll find compassion at the hands of your captors if you'll just turn to the Lord so that they shall come again into this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away His face from you if you return unto Him. Why did you, say, Brother Tim, why did you read all that? To get to verse 10. Listen to this. So the posts pass from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh, even unto Zebulon, but they laugh them to scorn and mock them. How about that? Can you identify with that today? Today people laugh and scorn and mock and say, listen, y'all know I've been putting an article in several local papers for a number of years, for about 15 years. I figured up the publication, the circulation of those papers put together, hits about 20,000 people. And I know newspapers are passe and old news and they're on the way out, but as long as they're printing them and I've got an opportunity, I'm gonna keep putting it out there. And here's why. There's one of the local papers that I send in that has all kinds of responses, and usually it's from one guy, and I'm not going to call his name. Bless his heart. But he always responds in a negative way, almost always, especially when I write about issues that relate to politics. Because nowadays people, most people, I don't mean y'all, but a lot of people just don't even think that spirituality has a place in politics. But it does. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for spirituality before there was even a thing called politics. Spirituality in government predates politics. Okay, so so I put an article a few weeks ago about mass murder. About how politics misses it. You know, gun reform, gun reform, gun reform. We need family reform. We don't need gun reform. We need family reform. And that, of course, was the thrust of my article. And man, that just set this poor guy off. Now, here's the great thing. I don't ever usually see that whenever it's printed, and I'm not ever going to respond to him because it's just not worth responding. But here's the funny thing. The people in that area who read the article, they respond to him. And they say, we appreciate the article that Mr. McCool put in We disagree with the letter to the editor that this guy said, and I don't even have to take it up for myself because they're up there taking up for me, and it's creating more publication for that paper. More people are subscribing to that paper because they like to read whatever that you know, letter to the editor is going to be. So i just leave it alone. Just leave it alone. Now, I'm going to tell you, 15 years ago, if that had happened, before I had any experience in you know, being attacked or persecution or whatever, which is nothing in this day and time. It's not like somebody's trying to hang you up by your toes or tar and feather you. I probably would have responded 15 years ago, but now I just let the Lord do His thing. You see? So, you understand if we'll just leave it in the Lord's hands, if we'll just let the Lord do His thing, then we will find deliverance. Okay? You think about the God of the festival providing all of this festive time for these people to answer the problems that were in their lives and to give them an escape, if you will. We all need an escape, don't we? One of the reasons I started preaching this series on the God of the festival is because I felt like maybe we needed an escape. We needed a vacation. Maybe we need a vacation from the issues of the day. Now, I know I've mentioned a few issues. Some of you are saying, well, you've mentioned some, but we're still coming back to the feast. You get it? And here these people mocked and they laughed to scorn the letters that went out, that they sent out in goodwill. And they said, come to Jerusalem. Come and worship. Turn to the Lord. And they said, ha, 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 that's not the answer. Just like people say, reform of the family, repentance of the family is not the answer to mass murder. It is. It is the answer. People say, you don't find the answers in God. God. But you do. Any issues you've got in your life, any misunderstanding that you have in your life, anything that you bring to the Lord, if you bring it to Him in humility, and you don't mock and you don't scorn, then He will answer that for you. I promise you. I've been there myself and had Him answer it. And if I had never been there, I could tell you based on the authority of the Word of God, He will. Now, I had a couple other unleavened bread feasts I wanted to mention, but I want to move to this one. Okay, Turn to the book of Mark, the 14th chapter. The greatest feast of unleavened bread that has ever happened. Now, If you'll permit me as you're turning there, if you do the math, now look, remember this. And I don't want to throw a wrench in anybody's mind, but let me ask you this. Does Christmas happen on the same day every year? It doesn't, does it? (laughs) You know, it happens on different days, different years, and there might be a leap year. So you understand the 25th of December does not ever fall on the same day every year. And neither did the Passover, okay? It's on the 14th. So the Passover when they came out of Egypt was on a Friday night going into the Saturday. But through the years, you know, the the Passover could fall on a Monday, the 14th, a Tuesday, Wednesday. Y'all get that? So in the time of Christ, best I can tell, now I know it's open to some interpretation, but if you do the math and you kind of look at it carefully, best I can tell, Wednesday was the 14th of Abib in the time of Christ. The reason I believe that is because that's the only way that you can get three days and three nights in there before a Sunday morning resurrection or a Saturday afternoon resurrection. Remember, the Jews started their days at the end of the day. The day for the Jew started at sundown, sundown to sundown. So anyway, don't let that throw you off on what we're talking about. But I believe we can see from the scripture that on the 14th of Abib in Mark, the 14th chapter, you've got Jesus observing the Passover, the last Passover with his disciples. And so you know what that ushers in, right? You have the Passover, and then the next day, the 15th of the month, starts the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. So on that night, as Jesus gathered with his disciples, and the traitor took his hand away from the table and left to go and saw an opportune time to go and do his business, the traitor Judas leaves, and Jesus implements the New Testament communion, the perfection of the Passover meal, if you will, And then He begins to preach to them. If you read the book of John for about five or six chapters, He begins to preach to them. And then He turns His eyes up towards heaven and He speaks to His Father in the presence of the disciples. And then guess what? They sung a hymn and they went out into the Mount of Olives with His disciples. And guess what? That puts us in the early morning hours of the 15th day of the month. It's the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Are y'all with me? I hope it's not too complicated. I want you to see it. So remember what Jesus said at the table at the Passover? He said, take, eat, drink. This is the blood of my covenant. He said, take, eat this bread, unleavened bread. This is my body, which is broken for you. Where was the lamb? The lamb was not on the table. The lamb of God was at the table. You got it? Are you with me? (laughs) So they go out to the Mount of Olives in the early morning. And guess what? It is now the feast of unleavened bread. For the next seven days, they're to be observing. And all throughout Jerusalem there, as the people had gathered in to observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they're gathered in these homes and they stayed. You wouldn't call them hotels, but people would rent out places or just make places available for travelers to come in. And all throughout the city, thousands have observed the Passover. And now they're excited about observing the Feast of Unleavened Bread for the next seven days. While wow, the bread of God is in the Mount of Olives. You hear that? The bread of God, the true bread, the the bread that is about to go into the oven is in the Mount of Olives and that's whenever the priests send men to get Him. And the Romans come with torches and with swords and with whips and they come to take Him by force. And when they come to the bread of God, as He's there in the garden, what does He do? He says, whom seek ye in the book of John? And they say, we seek Jesus of Nazareth. And He says, I am He. And they all fall down. (laughs) That ought to clue them in on something. There's something really weird going on here. We all just fell down. They get back up and He says, whom seek ye? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And He says, I am He. And He lets them take Him. But they took none of the apostles because He says none of His men, none of His people would be taken. So they take the bread of God into custody. And let me just say this. Those Jewish scholars when they were doing this, they were violating every law of God. They were violating even their own traditions that they had come up with to supplement the law of God. They were in violation. They were defiling themselves the way they were handling this. And of course, as you know, Jesus was tried three times in one night. Three mock trials. First in front of the Sanhedrin where they mocked and they spit on him. And then he was tried in front of Pilate and he found him not guilty. And then he was tried in front of Herod and he said not a word. Three mock trials. You wonder what the ACLU would do with that today. Three mock trials in one night. A condemnation of death in one night. And the death penalty implemented on Him in less than 12 hours. He's hanging on the cross. That's terrible, isn't it? But remember, this is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this is the bread of God. So early that morning, as He's delivered, as He allows Himself to be delivered into the hands of men, He was prepared. He is the Passover. He is the Lamb of God. Y'all remember John, the sixth chapter, where Jesus said, I am the bread come down from heaven. All that the Father giveth me as the bread of God shall come to me. You see, he is the unleavened bread of God. He had no sin in him. He had no guile. He had no deceit. He is prepared to offer himself. He is the feast of God. Let me tell you, he's your feast, child of God. So I don't know if you ever understand much about how it, you make bread or how you make dough. You know, that's a violent process where you have to put all these ingredients together. Of course, with unleavened bread, you're obviously missing leaven, but you come together and you knead this dough and the, the fingers get on it and it mashes it and it mashes it until it turns into this substance that is ready to be what? Where do you- you put the bread after it's needed why don't you put the bread after it's been pressed violently and put into a condition to where it's ready for something what is it it's put in the oven it's baked in the oven and I tell you, child of grace, as the, as the true bread of God has been taken by the hands of men and pressed and all these different things that took place with Jesus, now he's prepared to be put into the oven. But I want you to know that it's not the oven of men that he's being put in. I want you to know that it's not the oven that men could come up with and, and burn his body. I tell you, he's put into the fiery furnace of the judgment of God, the chastisement of God, and he's baked there for those hours that he was upon the cross. And praise be to God, whenever we find in John 19, chapter of the 31st verse, he cried out he says it is finished you know what by goodness the bread was done praise God the Lord looked upon what he had there hanging on the cross and he said it's sufficient to pay for the sins of the people of God he was made to be sin he God took your sins and were laid upon his son and he was turned into something that he had never been before and he was baked in the wrath of God in the oven of God and then whenever it was done Jesus said it is finished the bread's ready to be taken out (laughs) Isn't that something? Does that astound y'all like it astounds me? (laughs) Greatest feast of unleavened bread that's ever taken place. Jesus cried in the midst of all of that suffering. In the midst of being baked in the wrath of God, in the oven of God, as the wrath of God was poured out on Him for you. He said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You see that? What's your experience With the Feast of the Unleavened Bread today, I tell you, child of grace, He is your unleavened bread. (laughs) He was baked and He was put in the oven of God so that you can stand before God even now and say, praise God, I'm living in the righteousness of the unleavened bread of God, the true bread of God. Now, if that doesn't make you want to get busy serving God and go back to your house and start getting the leaven out of your house, are you ready to go get the leaven out of your house? I'm telling you, That's not a seven day a week feast anymore. Are you with me? It is a daily feast, it's a minute by minute feast, it's a monthly feast, it's a yearly feast. It's an exciting feast that ought to bring us joy, and we ought to be examining ourselves as Paul said in 1 Corinthians the 5th chapter. He says, "Purge out the old leaven." Go and look at your life and see what kind of leaven you've got there. You probably got a little bit of leaven somewhere. <laughs> you say, "Well, I can't find anything in my house." But what about in your heart? We've all got that old human nature there, and God has purged us from that human nature, but it still gnaws at us, doesn't it? It still pulls us towards temptation. It still pulls us toward doing the things that are against the pleasure and the purpose of God. Are you festively rejoicing in the unleavened bread of God? Are you celebrating? Let me tell you, you cannot celebrate the unleavened bread of God, Jesus Christ. You can't celebrate Him without being in a constant mode of removing leaven, removing leaven, removing leaven. Look in the mirror in the morning. You got some leaven to remove. You might be in a bad mood. Look at the things that you do on a day-to-day basis. Have I got some leaven to unmove? Am I mad? Am I angry all the time? Am I upset? Am I walking around just mad? Am I depressed? Am I down? Is my situation not like I want it? I tell you, child of grace, looking to the unleavened bread of God and continuing to purge out the leaven of our life, purge out the leaven of sin, purge out the things that are against God, and your sweet, festive joy continues to increase. And you can look not just to the symbol, not just to the symbol of the bread, the unleavened bread, but you can look in your mind's eye through the eye of faith, to the cross of Christ and see him burning in that oven for you. What would you not give up? That you didn't have to be there, that you didn't have to pay for your sins. He didn't lay your sins on you. He laid your sins on him, and he baked his Son in the oven of God's judgment. And now you're free. Can you see now, maybe? through what Christ did, that they could eat that not very tasty unleavened bread and rejoice that they were no longer prisoners in Egypt. But if you know anything about the Israelites, they constantly had a slave mentality, didn't they? Oh, if we were just back in Egypt, all that good food we had down there. Oh, if we just have something other than this manna from heaven. My goodness. (laughs) Aren't we like that? Don't ever look at them and say, well, I wouldn't have been that way. Yes, you would have. I am that way. (laughs) We've got it so easy. We've got it so made. And God has given you something from week to week that you can rejoice in. The God of festive joy has you a feast of unleavened bread that you can rejoice in here today. And if you've never done it, the best thing that you can do to rejoice in the feast of unleavened bread is to come and make it known that I believe that the true bread of God, He paid for my sins. He was baked in the wrath of God's oven for me. (laughs) And I want to serve Him. we give you that opportunity